chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, beginning with verse 24. From there Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the little children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon toward the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered it, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> There's a form of a sentence called a paraprostachian sentence. That's a big word, isn't it? I used to go out and know a guy that any time somebody said big word, he'd say, mayonnaise, mayonnaise, to prove that he knew a big word too. Paraprostachian is a big word. Now you might not have heard that word before, but it's a figure of speech where the last part of a sentence helps you to understand the first part and then to make sense of the whole sentence. It's supposed to end the sentence in an unexpected way so that you're kind of caught by it and you don't know what to do with it so you look back and read it again to understand exactly what it's saying. It's a rhetorical technique. It's a way of arguing for something. A way of making sense. It's meant to surprise the reader and introduce something in a novel and emphasizing way so that you don't forget it. Here are some examples. I asked God for a bike, but I know God doesn't work that way, so I stole a bike and asked for forgiveness. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. Light travels faster than sound. That's why some people appear bright until you hear them speak. 
If I agreed with you, we'd both be wrong. War does not determine who is right, only who is left. This is my favorite one. The early bird might get the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. It's not always great to get up early in the morning. How is it one careless match can start a forest fire, but it takes a whole box to start a campfire? Here's another one that I like. A bank is a place that will lend you money if you can prove that you don't need it. Right? Why does someone believe you when you say that there are four billion stars, but not when you say the paint is wet? They still have to touch it. Why do Americans choose between two people for president, but 50 for Miss America? Looks like we're choosing between 20 this year though, right? You don't need a parachute to skydive. You just need a parachute if you want to do it twice. (laughs) When tempted to fight fire with fire, remember that the fire department uses water. Right, Bill? I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather, not screaming and yelling like everybody else in the car. There's a lot of debate about the paragraph I read to you about Jesus helping this Syrophoenician woman. And it's a parapostokian debate. People read it in hindsight. And they look at Jesus' action and they want to judge Jesus. They want to criticize Him for being reluctant to help somebody who was not like Him. But in Jesus' day, that would have been what is expected of Him. Being a devout Jew, it would have been expected of him not to immediately rush in and touch and help for somebody who was not a devout Jew. And some people say that we have to answer a question and say, is Jesus testing the woman or is he just being mean? That somehow we have to determine that. Is he testing her or is Jesus learning from her? Is she teaching him a lesson? And both of those things would really be acceptable. It would be okay if Jesus was testing her to see if she had faith, to see if she believed that he could heal her daughter. And it would also be okay, I think, if Jesus... was responding of being Jewish. If Jesus was learning from her about who He was. You might remember that when Jesus was at the temple, it was made pretty clear that He didn't know everything about Himself. He was sitting at the feet of the teachers and learning from them and arguing with them and teaching them too. And for most of the church's tradition, we have understood that Jesus learned about Himself, even to the point when He came to the garden and asked God, take this cup away from me. But God caused Him to drink it anyway. And Jesus submitted Himself to God's own will for His life. Some people say we have to choose between the two. Did she win an argument with Jesus, or was Jesus testing her faith? And I say... That we don't have to pick either one. That either one of those things can be true. But that the most important thing about this is that there's a lesson taught in it. 
What if Jesus' intention is to cause us to feel odd for a moment because He didn't just say, yes, I'll heal your daughter? What if we're supposed to wrestle with the story? What if we're supposed to wrestle with the tradition that He was brought up in, which has been handed to some of us in the church today, that we don't deal with people who aren't like us? I mean, honestly, why are there white churches and black churches? Because we've inherited that attitude that we don't deal with people who aren't like us. Maybe what's supposed to happen is we're supposed to be so uncomfortable with Jesus not rushing in to help the daughter that we're confronted that sometimes we don't rush in to help people who don't look like us either. Or think like us. Or believe like us. I'll give you an example. I had a conversation with someone one time who was talking about what a shame it was that children can't pray in school, which is absolutely not true. We have teachers here and and a former principal, if you'd like to ask Cindy or some of them, if children pray at school, they will tell you that children pray at school. It has not been eliminated. What happens is Miss Trumbull doesn't come around and teach everybody the Bible anymore like she did all of us, right? Who were in the Rock Hill School District systems. Now somebody asked me, I said, David, don't you think that that should be reinstated, that teachers should teach the Bible? And I said, no, because I don't want a Hindu teacher teaching my child Christian Scripture. I don't want somebody who doesn't believe it teaching it to my child. But we assume that every person in our schools and every teacher in our schools looks just like us, lives just like us, or worships just like we do. There are people who would not want a Roman Catholic teaching their their child what the Bible says. My sense is that if we're going to allow that, then we have to allow every teacher to teach their own faith because we live in a constitutionally free republic. It's the church's job to teach the Bible to our children, not our teacher's job. And what the church did for years was let the school district do it for us. And so now we're in a panic. And we want to draw a bar and say, oh look, God is abandoning the schools because the schools abandoned God. That's crazy. What has happened is we've been confronted again with our lack of desire to serve people who don't look like us. A lack of desire even sometimes to serve our children by teaching them the good news of Christ. We expect someone else to do it. Right? We expect the preacher to do it or the Sunday school teacher. I think what's going on in this story is a, this Parapristachian rhetorical skill of causing us to see something And then see it again later because you know what? Ultimately, Jesus heals her daughter. And some people will say, because she had enough faith, Jesus healed her daughter. But I want you to know, children, that this is about Jesus, not about the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus healed her daughter because Jesus is gracious. Because Jesus is merciful. Because Jesus is loving. Because Jesus is accepting even of people who don't look like Him. Who don't worship like Him. He accepted her. And healed her daughter. 
Even when his tradition said he should not have. Even when his religion said he should not have. He loved her. And I think what we're supposed to latch on to there is that we're all just like her. That all of us, all of us are sinners in need of grace. All of us are beggars at the table of Christ. What a lot of people have done with this story is try to determine who's in and who's out. Just like what we talked about last week when people decide, well, I'm the perfect example of what a good Christian is and everybody else is just going to hell. And it colors how we love people or how we don't love people. And Jesus lived in that same tradition where people who weren't like Him were not loved by God and God didn't have any business with them. But Jesus knew differently. And so He healed her daughter. There's danger for us, dear ones. As we grow in Christ, and as we come to feel like we belong to Christ, there's danger for us to assume that other people who aren't just like us can't belong to Christ. I think what this story forces us to realize is that we're all just like her, coming to Jesus for help that we don't deserve. Some people want to judge Jesus in this story and say that He was being mean or tyrannical. And I think that judgment stems from a sense that somehow God has to save us. From people believing and being so arrogant that they think we're worth saving. That somehow God has to stoop down and let go of God's judgment, of God's mercy, let go of God's own justice. Because we deserve it. Because we're so awesome. But the biblical message is that we're all beggars before the table of Christ. That all of us are sinners in need of saving. And this story reminds us of that. That we share her place. That our place is underneath the Master's table. But if we'll receive that with humility, there is healing for us. D.T. Niles has said that evangelism, the act of sharing our faith, is only one beggar sharing with another beggar where they can find food. Do you hear that, church? I wonder if this woman went home and told other people that that Jewish man is willing to heal us. I wonder if she went home and told other people just like her who were looked down upon by righteous Jews, who were looked down upon by the religious folk of her day, that man is different. He will heal us. I wonder if she went home and told her friends and neighbors where to find bread. We're all beggars. Invited into salvation. We are not demanders of salvation. But we are invited to Christ's table. All of us who love Him, who seek to live in peace with Him, who earnestly seek to be His people, are invited today to receive the free gift of life in this gift here. 
as we receive the consecrated body and blood of Christ. We receive new life. All of us are called to come and to ask for it and to receive it. Not but because we deserve it, but because Jesus is awesome. Not because we're awesome. This story reminds us that we're beggars for God's mercy. And that if we will come as beggars, we will receive it. And then we will be sent out to share that good word that our Lord Christ receives all who come. Dear ones, let us come to the table today. Not with hearts that believe we deserve this good gift of mercy. But with hands open to receive it. As the gift that it is. A gift of acceptance and love. For all of us beggars. Amen. If you would, the contemporary service.